Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. And listeners, you can perhaps already tell by the quality of the sound that something special is going on with this edition. Um, I am joined live, face-to-face, in person uh, by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. Harvey, how are you doing? And also, let me say thank you so much for um, uh, hosting us here in Chicago to record. It's great to have you here. Um, and I'm joined also by Sarah Bejung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, how has your visit to Chicago, uh, how has it gone? I've had a great time here in Chicago. Lovely to see you both uh, in person. Thanks again, Harvey, and thanks to Northwestern for, for hosting us. Um, you can't see this, folks who are listening, but we are, we are recording this with an absolutely spectacular view from the new Northwestern uh, theater building. So it's yeah. great, great to see. Yeah, there are sailboats. There's the lake. Um, Beautiful sunny day. We've had... Lovely. Yeah, it, it, we, we could go on and on. Um, uh, today on the podcast, we have three exciting topics to talk about. We are going to talk about the Bloomsbury Cultural History of Theater, the six-volume book set that has just been published. We are going to talk about Wallace Shawn's play, Evening at the Talk House, which we all saw last night in a fabulous production at a Red Orchid Theater here in Chicago. And we're going to talk about American Theater Magazine's list of the top 10 produced plays in the United States for the 2017-2018 season, which uh, a list that they generate every year and which was just put online um, in the past few weeks. Before we get to those topics, some news that has come across our social media feeds that we wanted to talk about. Uh, MacArthur grants were awarded to Annie Baker and Taylor Mack, two, of course, very exciting and, and promising and deserving theater artists. So we wanted to mention that. Kate Ellswit won the Oscar G. Brockett Book Prize for Dance Research for her book, Watching Weimar Dance. We wanted to say congrats to Kate, who I know is a listener. That's a great award and a great book. Aster is coming up in Atlanta, those of us who are participating in the conference. Harvey, you're going to be there, right? I will be there. Yes. Sarah, you've got a conflict. You're not, I cannot, not be but there. I will be there in spirit. We will all be. I'll follow the t- all the Twitter updates as they come. Yes, we will get on that. <laughs> Aster 2017, hashtag for you. Um, Harvey and I will be there. I'm doing a working session on um, pre-1850 performance. Harvey, what are you doing at Aster? I am on two plenary sessions. Uh, one to celebrate Marvin Carlson's new book, uh, which is 10,000 Nights in the Theater. I believe that's what it's called. Uh, and the other one is talking about black performance. Great. Great. Betty Corwin uh, was just announced. She will be receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award from the League of Professional Theater Women uh, for her work as the founder of the Theater on Film and Tape Archive at the New York Public Library. So congratulations to her. Well-deserved. That's awesome. Yeah. Lots of awards, lots of exciting things. The only other news item I have is that Paige and I finally got Hamilton tickets. So that's exciting. Congratulations. For us. Where? where, Which city? The St. Louis. So the production is It's in St. Louis? I didn't know that. Yeah. There's a touring company coming through, I believe it's in April. And of course, it's been like a multi-year process of waiting to see when the tickets would go on sale and, and buying, you know, subscriptions to the Fox season to get increased eligibility. And uh, we've been doing all that. So I'm happy to announce that 
come April of 2018, I will finally be able to have an opinion about this show that I already have <laughs> extremely strong and conflicting opinions about. But um, yeah, so that's major news in the field. Yeah. And have you seen it, Harvey? Yes. Oh, well, so... You gotta get on it. You I gotta get clearly, Hamilton tickets. Well, you know, I, I, I feel like I could just show up with my opinions. And, you know, <laughs> have them be completely unfounded. No, but had, had I thought about it, we could have seen it here. Oh, come on. We but then I felt like seeing something yes. else would have been a bit more interesting. Yeah, then we would have missed out on the very special, that very special experience of last night. About Indeed. which About which more later. So, the Bloomsbury Cultural History of Theater has been published. I believe it is out in physical paper form. There's so much to talk about in it that we're just going to scratch the surface. Um, but let me just say what the basic contours of this are. So it is a six-volume set of cultural history through you know time and space with a fairly um, conventional periodization scheme. So there are six volumes, one a piece for antiquity, the Middle Ages, the early modern age, the Age of Enlightenment, Age of Empire, and the modern age, so six ages. And then one of the innovative things about this is that within each of these six volumes, there are 10 different chapter headings that repeat in the same order throughout each volume. And so those 10 chapter headings are institutional frameworks, social function, sexuality and gender, the environment of the theater, circulation, interpretations, communities of production, genres, technologies of performance, and knowledge transmission. So you can sort of read it in a variety of ways. If you're particularly interested in the early modern age, you can pick up the early modern age volume and read 10 different essays by scholars for, with all sorts of you know backgrounds, though I will say largely Western theater history backgrounds. Um, um, or you can take, you know, sort of read in, in the perpendicular way and say, read the social functions chapter of six different eras spanning millennia. So it's interesting for that reason. Uh, Tracy Davis and Christopher Balm were the series editors, and then each volume within it had another editor just for that volume. Um, I should mention as uh, full disclosure that all three of us have a sort of uh, attachment to this project. I wrote the Technologies of Performance chapter for the Enlightenment volume. Sarah wrote the Knowledge Transmission chapter for the Modern Age volume. Um, and Harvey, as uh, the editor of Theater Survey, edited and published a couple of important essays that really give you a kind of peek under the hood of what the series editors were doing. So one thing I'll, I'll observe about this is that there's not a sort of general introduction in volume one where uh, Tracy and Christopher explain what this is, but what they do do is in two essays that were published in Theater Survey in 2015 and 2016, September each, um, they very much in, in a lot of detail give the, their thought process and their observations about how you frame and execute a sort of sweeping cultural history of theater. Um, so that's what the project is. You know, I'm, I think it's a pretty exciting thing. It's hard to think of another published, uh, I don't know, published volume or set of volumes this extensive in recent memory in the field. And so it's interesting for that reason. You have 60 authors, actually not quite 60, because I believe there are some volumes in which the same author repeats uh, more than one chapter, but about 60 authors. Um, some of them are also co-written. 
That's that was right. the other interesting thing is a number of chapters are written by two are two are co-authored by two people. That's absolutely right. Um, so I don't know. You know, we 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 got our hands on copies of this, and of course we did not read the entire thing, but sort of browsed through in different ways. It prompts a lot of questions, though, about what the sort of status of cultural history is. What's specific to it? What makes it different from other kinds of history? Um, and how you uh, you know summarize in twenty twenty five pages a category like sexuality and gender in you know antiquity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. That's a basic introduction to what was going on here. What did you guys think of this? So I have not read all six volumes uh, front to back yet, but I went through in preparation for this and I read. Uh, all of the technologies of performance. So I sort of read that kind of cross cross delineation. And, and what I will say is that uh, I think one of the achievements of this, at least from that sort of cross section and a little bit of spot reading in other, in other chapters, is how well the piece uh, as a whole really coheres. And this had been one of my major questions about the project from the beginning was how do you get bring this amount of dis- disparate material and disparate people together in something that feels like a collective project as opposed to a sort of a looser assemblage of, of reflections. And I think for the most part, the, the project really does that uh, incredibly well. Um, the technologies of performance, it was really interesting to see the way in which certain phrases, ideas recur, as well as the different ahistorical theoretical frameworks get deployed, right? So that you have lots of different ways of looking at the question of technology and performance temporally, right, historically, but also that the theories that people engage come from all over the place, right? And not just from the period in which you're talking. Like, so, I mean, this is something that Pamela does in his chapter, for example. Yeah, I, I did. I didn't read you know, diachronically, as it were, in the way you did. I'm glad you did that with one of those categories. But I looked at the technologies of performance chapter before mine and then after mine, you know, not having admittedly engaged in a lot of conversation with those authors before, though I will say that uh, Tracy and Christopher set up a a platform where we could talk to the other authors and, and some of those discussions did happen. But I was pleased to say that, or pleased to see that the, you know, author's uh, in my category before mine and after mine, we we seemed to be interested in the same types of stuff, and there were nice unplanned linkages in terms of what we thought were the big technological phenomena of this era. And you know, technologies of performance, I think, of the different categories was one of the easier ones to conceive. I, if I was writing an interpretations chapter or uh, knowledge transmission, as you did, I think it might be a little bit less evident to me where to begin. Well, I have a question. Seeing that I was not a contributor, what sort of guidance did you receive in support of the coherence of the larger project, either as a volume or the seven-volume series? I remember the emails that you know Christopher and Tracy sent out. I remember them distributing either a draft of the early essay that was in Theater Survey or the essay itself. Um, hmm. And, you know, I think I, at least in my case, I had more direct guidance from Michelle Leon, who was the editor of the Enlightenment chapter. Um, And of course, now I'm rewinding in my mind, you know, 18 months or whenever it was to when I sat down to write this. And, you know, I remember trying to think, like, what does this mean, cultural history? It's one of the questions I want to bring up later, which is, you know, like, in a way, theater is a category of culture. So how do you write a cultural history of a component of culture, right? Um, but for me, that meant 
encompassing uh, some of the things that I like to write about anyway. So what's going on in philosophy? What's sort of going on in uh, political history alongside of it? What are the different what are the different ways that we can think of the way meaning is generated or tied into the the topic, the subjects that we're actually writing about? Um, I do think that that both Tracy and, and Chris address that question about culture and theater as a cultural product and as a culture a side of cultural history. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the quotes from their series preface, which is a relatively short piece that goes in the front of every book, is uh, where they talk. They say theatrical performances' ability to organize and cohere markers of cultural belonging difference and dissonance are the hallmarks of social life. And so I think that that framework uh, encompasses a little bit of, of the, the the underlying question. Um, I think my sense is that every volume operated relatively differently and that each volume editor had a different relationship with the series and, and, and was also structuring material in very different ways. So some of the chapters push back against their categorization and where they sort of situate in, in, I think, pretty interesting and productive ways. Other ones, you know, really kind of follow and flow as one might expect. But the, um, so I think, I think it'll be interesting to kind of see, you know, as I read more and, and as more people kind of get into it, what a fuller answer to some of the questions that it raises. One of the questions I had, and I'd be curious on your thoughts on this, Harvey, in Peter Marx's introduction or his acknowledgments, he talks about the project as one that will change the course of theater historiography. Huh. And I, I want, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I think it could. I, but I really wonder, like, does a, does, a, does a volume like this, right, of print books that are so expensive they're almost certainly going to sit in a library reference section, um, what do you guys see the impact on theater, uh, on historiography more broadly being? That's a good question. I'm still working my way through the the mini volumes, uh, but what I can say, having engaged with both Tracy and Christopher during the process of writing their articles for Theater Survey, is that you know there is an attention to you know how history itself is written, mm. right? Uh, and and that was the point of of those two theater survey articles. The first one outlines their ideas and ambitions for for the cultural history series. Uh, and obviously, this is what the series editors want to do, what their ambitions are. You know, but then that ambition gets farmed out to seven individual editors of each volume. You know, who then recruit in conversation with the series editors. You know, the ten or so contributors to each volume as well. Uh, so. There's a way in which you know the larger idea may or may not be realized, right? Which then prompted the the second article, you know, within Theater Survey, which was a chance for both Christopher and Tracy to reflect upon what they've received and to see how closely uh, it engages uh, and, and mirrors their goals and hopes for the uh, collection. Now, within the individual volumes here, I'm less clear because their voices are less uh, uh, present, you know, other than. A couple paragraphs, <laughs> right, yeah. in, in the front matter, um, and it becomes more invisible. But I think if you think of it in terms of the fact that you have two people who organize a team of individuals uh, to investigate the topic of the cultural history of theater across time, and you think of it that way, you know, that this is an, an engineered project. It's more like a, a football team than a basketball team. 
right? So you've got like a football coach oversees the offensive and the defensive coordinator and the special teams coach and the training room and, you know, all of whom are then responsible for developing plays and uh, areas within, you know, the quarterback coach and things like that. Whereas a basketball coach deals with, you know, 12 people yes. in a more in a more direct way. Yes. So this is more Thanks like the, the football <laughs> project of, uh, yeah. that would be for our international listeners, the American football, American football. Yes. Uh, version. Yes. Of, yes. Uh, um, it's interesting in terms of the question of what cultural history is. And, and those essays, I really do strongly recommend those essays, listeners, because if, if you have a, if you want you know, to un- to a straightforward answer to the question, what is cultural history for theater and performance studies? You know, this is where I might agree with Peter Marx. I'm not sure that it will change the course of theater historiography, but I think for this document to come out in 2017, if anyone is wondering, well, how is cultural history practiced in theater? What are people's different takes on what that means in 60 different subjects? That's informative. And I think part of what's interesting is that it's difficult to define cultural history. There's, you know, a kind of, within historiography more broadly, there's a kind of, at least as regards, um, you know, European history, the advent of cultural history is sort of a revisionist impulse against Marxist, overly social, overly economistic um, uh, interpretations of the French Revolution, and instead it says... Let's look at people's ideas. Let's look at the, you know, uh, philosophy. Let's look at the literature. Let's look at what the, you know, different different takes on what people's experiences were as living beings in those times, and see if we come up with different interpretations about what these events are. And it, but on the other hand, I think it becomes a rather a sort of basket of rather diverse approaches because meaning, interpretation, culture these are extremely elastic topics. I, I, one comment that I wanted to make about this, and this is just about the essays that uh, Davis and Baum write, there's an interesting recurring theme in um, those, which is that it's not that cultural history sort of stands apart from social history. It's, they're a kind of fused pair. Um, the first paragraph of the 2016 article is that theater is a social form. Theater is a social art. And it frames cultural history from the outset as being a kind of alternate perspective on social history. So how do we understand the the social and the social order in history? We look at the cultural artifacts around it, and it's one way of seeing how society functions. So in that way, you know, the two are not opposed. Cultural history is a way of looking back at social history. So I think it's valuable in part because you have dozens of different scholars in dozens of different fields saying, this is what I think a cultural history of this thing is at that moment. I, I mean, I also think that there's a way in which this type of book, this, this, this series of volumes, is not going to be recreated in the near future. Right? Uh, it, it, it resembles an earlier model of, of, of knowledge creation and documentation in terms of the multi-volume series that outlines from start to finish mm-hmm. what theater is, right? Uh, and if you think of this as, as a, a capstone to the work that precedes it, it becomes a final voice. It becomes a way for readers to think about you know, the importance of having a comparative framework mm-hmm. uh, to think about theater across time and to attend to uh, anything from 
uh, Western privilege and bias to uh, the persistence of uh, certain institutional frameworks uh, to considering the role of sex and gender uh, across time. You know, and I think that's really important so that it begins to rewrite and re- revise the types of global theater histories that preexist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, you could almost wish that the hi- the title of it was a cultural history of theater, because <laughs> when you're when you're making twenty page selections of, you know, gender and the Enlightenment, for example, you are just going to be able to touch on this and that. It's it's part of the nature of cultural history, which which is that you're a little bit closer to the documents, right? Like, how can you generalize about what sex and gender were vis a vis theater across the even the continent of Europe or even in a country? You know, for a century, so it's samplings. You're get, you're necessarily getting what the authors think are important samplings of what's going on here and there in the topic, right? and, and at one particular time. I mean, that would be, I think, one of the. Well, it's a canonical. It's a canonical project, right? I mean, it's like you know, it's it's gathering together a certain group of people. Some some folks are included. Some people aren't. Um, you know, you can't do everything, but it becomes a kind of snapshot of, of where, what we're thinking about in these topics at this particular moment. I think, um, and maybe that's where the, you know, Marx's uh, idea about uh, changing historiography is, right? You know, just to, just to put that many people in conversation with each other at one single time. That's a good point. Uh, I think does give us, you know, a sense of what of how we're kind of viewing the field at a particular moment and may give other people the opportunity to kind of go back and forth against this going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, from, from time to time you do find statements that are rather, uh, you know, big umbrella, you know, sort of statements that are general but obviously in an, inform, in an informed way. So I think this is, and again, this is from the theater survey um, article from 2016, but the uh, Baum and Davis say alienation of culture from the social base by consumerism is a major part of the story of 20th century cultural history. So that's a kind of that's a statement that is big and broad and meant to be you know specific and defended. It's not just like here's a little sample here and there. Here's an example of how that's you know you could look at Broadway and say there's an example of you know consumerism and alienation. Um, but there, I don't think that there's the practice of cultural history as represented here is not necessarily to say like, okay, these are the most important things. Like here's the most significant playwright or institution in this era, but here's, you know, revealing examples of how broader phenomena are playing themselves out. So listeners, check it out. Um, Go to your local library, order it in for your university libraries and check out those um, those articles in, in theater survey and, and congratulations to um, Tracy Davis and Christopher Baum and well, I, I, at the risk of this going on too long uh, I think it's worth uh, highlighting the 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 individual volume editors mm-hmm. um, did we mention them already no not by no. name right so so um, antiquity was edited by Martin Reverman um, middle ages was edited by Jody Enders uh, early modern age Robert Hinkey. Uh, Age of Enlightenment, Michelle Leon, Age of Empire, Peter W. Marks, and Modern Age was edited by Kim Solga. So, last night, Sarah, Harvey, and I got to see a show together, something we've long wanted to do since we started the podcast. Um, uh, And we were lucky enough to see 
Evening at the Talk House by Wallace Shawn at a Red Orchid Theater. Um, uh, so this is a play that uh, probably not many of our listeners have seen. Um, I don't know, Harvey. Do you want to give uh, you know a bit of a synopsis from from memory what what the play was, just so that people listening will know what we're talking about in broad outline? Sure thing. So Evening at the Talk House premiered in 2015 at the National Theatre in London, and then it was remounted, I believe, uh, at on Broadway with Matthew Broderick uh, in the lead. Uh, and this is its first Chicago uh, performance, I believe. Um, anyway, uh, the play is essentially a drama set in a club uh, in which a series of theatre actors return a decade later, I guess a decade after after not really seeing each other, uh, and it's essentially a reunion play with a with a twist, uh, and so it's a combination of the performers who are actors who are playing actors, considering not only the differences in terms of their career trajectories since they parted, right? Those who are still successful, those who are down and out, those who are bruised and beaten, quite literally. Uh, but what you learn as the play moves on, and this is a bit of a spoiler is that in addition to being working actors, uh, they're also complicit in this dark political moment uh, where they they target individuals who they feel are working against the purposes of the state, right? So there's a way in which you know, actors become spies, they meet people who rat out neighbors, uh, who target people for killing, uh, and, and that's how the play proceeds. So let's talk about it. So what are your thoughts about this thing? So... Um I think for, for people who've, who know Wallace Shawn's work in other contexts, uh, the, the play will not come as a great surprise, right? I mean, it, it, at, at its core, it is about the, the, subtle, the subtle ways in which we make a descent into fascism acceptable, palatable, and even seem inevitable. So there's a certain amount of um, treatment of killing as a as a matter of technical bureau, bureaucracy right yes. so people talk about like having these lists that they sort of identify for targeting people and they do it in the evening and it's a stable source of income um, so that that resonates with a lot of his other work what's also really interesting in this play is the parallel to theater and so it becomes for to a large extent meta theatrical in fact there's even a moment uh, later in the play where one of the one of the performers or one of the participants at this evening who was not in the original play that is being celebrated nevertheless performs a piece of that original play. Um, and so we get this kind of wrapping around. And this is, this is a character who, prior to coming on stage, has been badly beaten. And so comes in as a kind of compromised body that stands in for the, the violence that gets very casually alluded to elsewhere in the play. So in, in many ways, the play also becomes about Theater, a talk house, obviously points us to uh, a kind of metatheatrical frame in which we are critiquing our own casualness in the midst of uh, a world submerged, you know, suffused with violence that we can sit around enjoying an, an evening, you know, at the theater in a kind of casual setting, you know, with our drinks in hand. Um, but also, one of the things I found really interesting, and, and it's part my own interest in television and the relationship between theater and theatricality and and mid-century television and how that shapes dramatic form over the the latter course 
of the 20th century and into the 21st um, is that the play marks very clearly that the theater has, in fact, is not just dying but has died. Mm-hmm. Yes. That theater does not exist in this world anymore and it has been replaced by uh, mostly mediocre television shows mm-hmm. um, that no longer sustain everybody who was sustained by the theater, either spiritually or just economically. And so I think the the relationship to theater and its replacements yep. is also a very potent form of violence that the play takes up that, that Sean seems to speak to very directly. It's great. You were, you were seeing sort of different things than I was. In other words, the meta-theatrical nature of it, the fact that the actor who... Uh, and for him it's very poignant that he wasn't included in the cast of this hit play and he sees it as possibly a decisive moment in his career um, that he ends up giving this monologue in this very um, sort of, I don't know, climactic moment of the play. Of course, it's all in the talk house. Of course, it's all about what theater is. Um, To my mind, it was, you know, sort of two big premises. One was, you know, staging the dehumanization that can happen in show business. So you learn, you know, the sort of first character the, the, you know, who seems to be the protagonist at the beginning is a successful playwright who's gone on to have a TV show and he's still well regarded. And then you come to realize that several of the people there um, have just been discarded, right? And there's the uncomfortable social situation of, hey, we all worked on this thing years ago, and like, how are things going? But everyone knows that some things are going better for some than others, and so it's this acute representation of the um, the difficulty and the and the inhuman side of show business. Um, and then the other ingredient, to my mind, was what if you, what if all of the killing that the state does was inside of our house instead of outside of our house, metaphorically speaking, right? right? So that it, it's a very Orwellian world, you come to realize, where people, as Harvey said, you know, for extra money are vetting targeting lists of people who live in, in you know, Malaysia and, you know, other parts of the world. But then also you come to realize that people can be assassinated, um, that there's a kind of odd uh, communal... Um, dynamic by which when people aren't useful or desirable anymore they just get beaten to death or poisoned so putting those two ingredients together that seemed to be the kind of you know raison d'etre of the play and I thought it was very potent a lot of pathos and a lot of humor Uh, and this production was directed by Shade Murray it was awesome the production was phenomenal it was great and for those who are listening and therefore missed this show, yes. uh, it's worth noting that it was staged at, as panel noted, a Red Orchid Theater, which is a Chicago storefront theater, and it's a tiny, tiny theater uh, in which the stage itself is about as big as the audience seating area. And to put this in perspective, there are only two rows for the audience uh, to sit in, right? So it's you're in the talk house itself while you're watching the performance, yeah. uh, and the actors are often within a few inches or a few feet certainly of you. It's hard to imagine what this show would have been like at uh, a more prominent, resourced, and and therefore distanced house, right? I mean, where you could sit in in darkness, unseen, kind of observing this, as opposed to what felt now, you know, in this space. Um, And and through the, you know, it has a very characteristically 
Seanian uh, opening monologue um, by a character who uh, will resonate, like if you know The Fever or uh, Aunt Dan and Lemon or, um, or, or several of his other plays. Um, and for that entire opening monologue, which starts you know, in the audience, the house lights don't even flicker. So, um, and to, to add to that kind of layering on this particular evening, we were unbelievably fortunate, but Wallace Shawn himself was in attendance. So he sat, um, and we, the three of us, were all spread out on different sides of the audience. So I, I was center, um, Harvey was stage right, and panel was stage left. Um, and, and Wallace Shawn was sitting like behind me, like one seat or two seats over. And yeah. in fairness, there was there were seats that were open behind both you know panel and my seats. But the the magnetism of Sarah <laughs> you know, through Wally yes. Shawn to that seat. I, well, it, it, in fairness, it had his name on it. But um, <laughs> uh, did you notice that before he sat down? I did actually, oh, and so I you thought knew. I you thought knew. wouldn't it be funny if that were the same? Yeah. Um, and then it was. So of course, it, it added this really interesting dimension in which we were all in the living room, right, or in this quote unquote club um, that was called the Talk House. So it wasn't even metaphorical. It was it was literal as well as. Uh, meaning something else but then to have him there I mean I was aware of him the entire time oh, sure. and I'm sure the you know the uh, the actors could see him even when the house lights darkened at their you know at most he was still readily visible uh, and you know he's not a a, a common looking individual right you wouldn't mistake him for someone else right so I mean it yeah, was, yeah. so it added this kind of you know this this layer of tension around the whole piece in which it was both what it pretended to be and what it was pretending it was not pretending to be, um, which made for a really dynamic and, and really energized evening. Um, you know, one thing that I thought was interesting about this is that, you know, it's 2017, um, it's a very particular political climate, the sense of like, you know, creeping fascism or, I don't know, leaping fascism. Um, is def- definitely on our minds, but this is a play from 2015. Right. This is a play with no written in no cognizance of the rightward lurch of American politics or the kind of open fascism, and so it's interestingly dissonant, I guess, because I think what what Wallace Shawn is thinking about is drone killings. I mean, I don't mean to you know ascribe to him what his thoughts were, but the types of um, violence that the characters are implicated in. This is like, you know, war on terror stuff. This is not the kind of open and populist version of American fascism he's commenting on. It's the, you know, Obama era right. version of American fascism that he's commenting on. I still thought the play, you know, worked in a kind of a different moment. Well, you know, I mean, that, I think, I mean, I would really recommend people read, read the play because I think what it points to is that, um, we like to think that there's a big distinction between Obama-era American fascism and yes. Trump-era American fascism and, you know, George W. Bush American fascism and Clinton. And, you know, we like... And what I, what I think that Sean's whole career points to, mm-hmm. right, you know, he's been writing these plays since the early 80s, is that, you know what? Like, there has always been this undercurrent of American fascism. Right. And there has always been this tendency, not just American. I mean, I think I think you can enlarge it to a kind of global, but certainly like an industrial Western sensibility that, that it's, you know, I mean, it's it's there. I mean, he is, this is a response to Hannah Arendt as much as it is a response to drones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, you know, the second half of the 20th century on being a, a culture and societies that are always 
poised on the edge of tipping over into yes. uh, into, into fascist right. and and capable at any moment of rhetorically justifying it mm-hmm. in the most innocent and banal of you know of, of vocabularies and mm-hmm. and and I think what really hits home with this piece is recognizing like he's been saying the same thing for 30 years and he was right 30 years ago and he's really right now mm-hmm. and it's the same continuity and and much as we like to think things have changed and there is a kind of progressive move it is far less mm. there is far less progress being made than we would want to believe that's true and if you think about the sense of it being normalized uh, and embracing and including the theater community which one often would think would be not aligned with that set of politics mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, part of the surprise of the play uh, but it's also part of the political message of the play itself right yes. that like no community is sort of immune from the broad acceptance of uh, these ide- ideologies although there is perhaps a little bit of a tint of um, that theater is perhaps slightly better than television yes that's true, <laughs> true. Um, that's even true. as that idea of nostalgia gets brought up and, and slammed and critiqued in that same moment there is a little bit of a tint of weren't we a gentler what more more you know better people in the past when we when we still had yeah, theater yeah, was yeah. was was uh, you know dying but alive well i think there's no doubt that there's this nostalgic commentary about what's happened to theater that comes through the play but i you know the, the play you could sort of chart it according to kind of the moments of violence that are Revealed, you know, there's no violence on stage, uh, physical violence, but that things that have happened to people or are going to happen to people or who or that might happen to people suddenly arise and are spoken about openly in ways that are very shocking. Um, and one of the early ones, one of the ones I remember from the beginning, is the you know the character who's sort of washed up, whose face is bruised because he's been beaten up by his friends. That's referred to, but when you learn his backstory with the uh, protagonist who's the sort of you know still powerful playwright it's in the context of theater casting that that really awful betrayal the first one in my mind happened in other words you could have cast me in this play that was a hit and I really would have been great in this role and I would have had a take on it but you hated me <laughs> and we can I will tell you like we can be honest about it now you hated me you never liked me you wanted me out and you did this to me so Part of what is interesting about combining those two elements that I spoke about earlier is that on the one hand, there's, yeah, 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 at night I vet lists of targets for people to get droned in Malaysia or whatever. And on the other hand, there's, we worked together and you froze me out and it ruined my career. And those are very different kinds of dehumanizing things that people do to each other. You know, Wallace, Sean, is written and spoken openly about being a socialist and in a way I'm tempted to interpret that as saying that you know in a kind of market in a purely market-oriented entertainment industry where choices about people and their employment and their careers are going to be made on the basis of profit motive you're going to have you know dehumanizing dynamics but I I think he's not necessarily writing about that or not necessarily thinking about that in a way it's the kind of dynamics of friendship and collaboration which are not in my mind necessarily married to a particular mode of economics that there's similarly kind of mean things that we do to each other just in the course of human life and human social life i think what it is is that it's not it's not a sort of you know socialist uh, 
message play necessarily. I think it has a kind of anti-fascist message. I think it has a kind of it wants to point out the way that when you're when you think you're sitting around and having cocktails and eating snacks and enjoying your professional class privilege, your hands are also dirty. But the other kind of violence that's in there, you know, you could have cast me in the show and you didn't. And look what happened to me. Right. I'm not sure. That I feel like that's broader than um, political. Yeah, I can see that. And I, I will say that um, what I learned yesterday was that it was the first time that Wallace Shawn had seen the production uh, because in previous iterations he had been a performer within the play. Yeah, I think I'm assuming in London and Broadway. So this was his first time witnessing it as an audience member. Uh, so it was really neat that he flew in just for the day to see the show alongside Sarah and panel, yes. right? It's really neat. Uh, and he was a wonderfully nice, warm, pleasant person to talk to. Yes, very, very sweet guy, as you can imagine. Um, so the last topic that we wanted to talk about today um, is American Theatre Magazine's list of the top 10 most produced plays of 2017 and 2018. There's all sorts of different things that we could um, uh, point out in this. There's some interesting facts. Sarah, do you want to, I don't know, tell us a bit more about who's on the list or things that you found interesting about this reportage? Sure. So I, I won't take up time reading the full list here, um, but I'll say uh, I'm very happy that Fun Home is number two on the list of most produced with uh, most produced with two. Uh, I'm sorry, with twelve productions. Um, uh, the first is Shakespeare in Love um, with the uh, the Lee Hall adaptation. Not a huge surprise, I think. You know, you can imagine that playing very well in lots of different places. But number two is Fun Home, and number three is Skeleton Crew by Dominique Morso, mm-hmm. um, with 12 and 11 productions, respectively. So I think those are both, to my mind, those really speak to a pretty robust, adventurous, um, and diverse American theater season coming. Um, it also includes, as one might imagine, uh, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, um, and uh, The Humans, right, both of which were very successful uh, in New York. Um, as well as uh, two uh, Jane Austens. Uh, so uh, the, uh, at number 10 of the top 10 is Sense and Sensibility, um, all adaptations with eight productions. And, um, and, and then number nine is uh, Miss Bennett, Christmas at Pemberley um, by Lauren Gunderson and um, Margot Melkon. And, and that sort of prompted... Uh, looking panel recommended that we sort of take a look at the 20 most produced playwrights and then looking particularly at Lauren Gunderson. Yeah. Um, and the and there's a New Yorker piece, the the most popular playwright you've never heard of. Yeah. Uh, or, no, just, or no, it's you've never heard of the most popular playwright in America. Oh, right. I'm in sorry. In my case was true. I did, not, yes. I did not know who Lauren Gunderson was. Well, so top 20 most produced playwrights of 2017, 2018, which I believe excludes Shakespeare, right? We just take him off. The, Shakespeare's always number yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the number one is um, for this upcoming year is Lauren Gunderson with twenty seven. Yeah, twenty seven yeah. productions. Have you guys? So you you didn't know her her work. I've only seen um, one of her plays. I saw um, Amelie La Marquise de, Le, uh, de, de Châtelet defends her life tonight. I saw appropriately enough at the Wellesley College Repertory Theater. Right, nice. so my beloved alma mater, um, and a good place to do a play focused on a woman scientist. Um, but I'm curious, have you have you seen others of Only her so Miss far? Only Miss Bennett. How was that? It was great. I mean, I mean, I will say that I I'm not in the Jane Austen. Mm-hmm fan club, 
<laughs> and I generally try. Well, that speaks even higher too. It's great, <laughs> and I don't usually. No, I, you know. I generally avoid any adaptation of Pride and Prejudice or yeah, yeah. anything along those lines. Um, and I and I went grudgingly because it's I went, I'm on the board, so I I had to go uh, to to the uh, premiere of this thing, and that was terrific. It was um, yeah. It was like it's like it's a lighthearted Christmas love story themed yeah. play. Yeah, it's it's hard to be mad. At it. I mean, and, and I can't have strong opinions about Lauren Gunderson never having seen or read a play of hers. Though, ask me anything about Hamilton. But um, uh, I will say, the first paragraph in the New Yorker article uh, explains how she and her literary agent were, were sharing a car ride, and they said, what does American theater now need? And the answer they came up with was, well, people love Jane Austen, and people love Christmas plays. So let's make a Christmas play, you know, Christmas Jane Austen play. And so... From that attitude of how you craft a play, you can argue it's you know it's it's broad, it's commercial, it's meant to make people happy. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it also isn't necessarily going to set theater professors, uh, you know, parts of flutter. Yeah, exactly. Although I will say, you know, I had not heard her name, but I had in a sense because a, a colleague of mine in the French department had just emailed me this week to say. Have you ever heard of this play? You know, Emily du, du Chatelet defends her life tonight. Like, my student is interested in it. She's writing about 18th century France. Like, maybe we could do it. So actually, as much as I feel like it's a you know, symptom of my own snobbism that I don't know who she is, like, you know, she's obviously very productive, very successful. But the, I will say that, I mean, I, I, I think it's important to also take the, the New Yorker article with a grain of salt. I mean, some of those New Yorker profiles... Um, and, and, and I might be overgeneralizing, but I've seen a few of them, particularly of women, uh-huh. really um, are, are uh, tend towards the snarky. Yes. And 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 undercut, right? I mean, I'm so I'm I'm thinking particularly of uh, you know the most recent article on Martha Nussbaum, for example, which talked extensively about what she wore, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I thought, uh, you know, I thought really did not was not a very fair piece in terms of uh, the importance of some of her work. So I am a little sensitive to a successful woman uh, playwright who, you know, I mean, if if we're going to talk about being strategic and, you know, playing to the market, again, Shakespeare is still number one. So let's, let's, you know, let's not. And I'm I'm not necessarily saying that, that, you know, she's on that level. But I, I, I was a little uncomfortable with some of the way that the New Yorker decided to frame and introduce us to this playwright well, that we but, hadn't but heard. But beyond that introduction, I feel like that, that profile is pretty flattering. I didn't read a ton of snark into it. I thought it was, you know, this, I mean, the, the title and that introductory anecdote, you're like, oh, okay. So they want us to think that she's the, you know, um, uh, what's the guy's name? The, the painter of light. Um, Thomas Kincaid. Yeah, that she's the Thomas Kincaid of theater. Um, but then as it describes what she does, I feel like it's... it's yeah, except re- then it puts her in Silicon Valley. It talks about what her husband does, or, you know, what her partner does for a living. I, yeah, I don't know. There was yeah. some... I think, I think you know, there. I don't think it was overt, I think, yeah. but I think there's a subtle undercutting yeah. uh, that I'm that I'm, maybe I'm oversensitive to. That's true. I mean, and I think there's a way in which what you could do is laud her for climbing through the ranks and becoming truly the most produced playwright in American regional theater. Yeah. Uh, and what's, what's significant here is this is a person who um, achieved this level of success without having a Broadway show, mm-hmm. right? So right. A, lot of, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of the playwrights you know, who are the most produced playwrights, they had a show that went to Broadway, 
went on a national tour, yeah. and then that then led to uh, its its reappearance uh, and and revival, I guess, to some extent across regional stages. Whereas this is a person who just takes on lots of commissions and writes specifically for mm-hmm. regional theater audiences, and then has proven successful. And then you know all regional theaters kind of look over the shoulders of other regional theaters yeah. to decide what to program for the next season. Yeah. Uh, so you can see how her productions have increased um, uh, significantly. Year year over year, yeah. so I think that like a few years ago she was like number three or five, sure. and then like she was a little bit higher, and then this year she's number one in terms of the most produced playwright. And but and but because these plays are written for regional theater audiences as opposed to being like the the show that was on Broadway, like you can imagine her consistently having a lock on the top five most produced playwrights ranking sure into the future. Yeah. Which which then also then begs the question. Okay, so you know. Um, particularly in this current moment of populism and right the coastal elites and particularly the urban centers being out of touch right, right. so so it's possible to imagine right that the theater that is most popular in regional theaters for those audiences is is a is of a very different kind and form than the theater and the drama I mean we sort of limit it to drama right now that is successful in New York and you know, perhaps among theater academics and, mm-hmm. you know, the snobbier among us. You know, which then also gets to this question of like, okay, so like at what point does the market hit? You know, at what point do the, do the, the at what point do we sort of look at the intersection of market and art mm-hmm. and, and start measuring like what is, what is good for the art form versus what is good for the, the theater system that we have? And right. it seems to me that, that one could make the argument that Gunderson is very good for the theater system that we have. Like, she is going to sustain and, and work like this. And, and people following this model of trying to do work that meets mm-hmm. audience expectations of, of regional theaters in very particular ways becomes really important. And I, I would also put Lynn Nottage's sweat mm-hmm. in the context of, you know, work that played well in New York you know, to a certain extent, but also was really important and speaks to what's happening in other parts of the country. But then the other side of this is, you know, there's, I don't see a lot challenging form in Gunderson's work. I'm not sure that it's terribly innovative or, or pushes us to any kind of great insights and, and ultimately creates very satisfying, um, almost televisual kind of Mm -hmm. frames and expectations. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm wondering like how, how we approach that or how, you know, how we think about that. How are you guys? Yeah. Although that may be pushing the form. Oh, maybe so. Being televisual. Okay. Sure. Um, there's other things about this list that I want to point out. Please. Though. Um, well, the Shakespeare thing. I mean, I actually had, in the time of thinking about this topic, I actually had a bit of a reversal myself. Um, so I'm always ready to be mad about how produced Shakespeare is, right? And so when they compile this list, they have a footnote, which is that, you know, this is the 10 most produced plays of the season, but we have we have struck Christmas Carol and we have struck every Shakespeare. And they say to make the list more inclusive. And so my initial reaction to this was, you should just publish the list because I would love to know how heavily Shakespeare is weighted, right? Would would five of the ten plays be Shakespeare? And, you know, don't pretend that American theater... 108 productions. Right. Well, actually, if you crunch those numbers... Um, of Shakespeare? Yeah. That's what this says. Yeah. So my initial reaction was... Out of how many theaters? 
out of out of one thousand nine hundred seventeen productions, one hundred and eight were Shakespeare. So that's five point six percent. That's not an overwhelmingly dominant place in the in the repertoire, right? It just means that my guess would be that actually you can you can think of it a little bit. So the most produced one was Twelfth Night, right? With I think like nine productions or something like that, which would put it right in the middle of the list. So what I think would happen is that if they if they included Shakespeare, then you know probably three or four entries on the list would be Shakespeare, and so there'd be three or four fewer names on there. But that you know when you look at that number, that's an incredibly that's a rather diverse um, set of plays that are being produced. Out of nineteen hundred productions, the most produced play that they tabulate, Shakespeare in Love, was done fifteen times. That's you know that's extremely diverse. That means that there are hundreds of plays being done. And so actually I think it, it shows the state of theater and its diversity mm-hmm. in across the country to be fairly strong. And diverse in a lot of different ways. If you look at this list of twenty of top twenty produced playwrights, you know, Oscar Wilde's on there, Arthur Miller rates rather high. Uh, but you have a ton of contemporary names. Um, fair, I haven't done the, the tabulation, but there's you know a fair quotient of women. I don't know that it's half and half. Classical, contemporary. There's a lot of there's a lot of diversity going on there. Although it's it's it is kind of masked by the number, right? So if you think about it in terms of the fact that there are 1,900 productions, but you know, ex- excluding Shakespeare, the right. um, the most produced play, fifteen have been produced fifteen times rather. Yeah, uh, it does make you wonder. Like, what else is being produced? And more to the point, um, like, does this structure create the impression of a more diverse American theater than really exists? Like, is it a case where, you know, there's going to be theaters looking for plays by women, uh, uh, artists of color, uh, women who are artists of color, uh, and then all of a sudden you see that representation climbing up uh, and the fact that, you know, on the one hand, you might say, "Hey, Lauren Gunderson has twenty-seven plays," and right. you know, uh, Lorraine Hansberry has however many. Actually, hides the fact that women, people of color, are not significantly represented across the nineteen hundred plays. In, in other words, is this, is this extra diversity at the top? In other words, are there are there a ton of theaters who are putting Lynn Nottage in their season, and then if you get below that top 20 number, it's just a ton of white men. Right. And yeah. we know it's not a ton of theaters uh, putting Lynn Nottage in their season because according to <laughs> this list, uh, does she even appear in the she top 20? She does not. Right. So she has fewer than eight productions. Right. Of the 1900 productions that... It would be interesting to actually get the, the raw, the raw data, data yeah. to yeah. see you know, what is the gender breakdown yep. across these 1900 plays. Yeah. Um, but I'm less cynical than I was. I was going to say, you know, rant about Shakespeare, et cetera. But the fact that only 5.5% of the plays staged are Shakespeare, to me, is actually encouraging. And, um, and why not? I can tolerate 5.5% of Shakespeare. Oh, heck. I could go to six. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much. Too much. I was surprised by, like, you know, like, that Arthur Miller is still... You know, yeah. Well, is so it, is it that, strong? Is it that a view from the bridge is getting done now and revived, or is that? Um, mm-hmm. uh, but of nineteen hundred productions, I know. It's but not, but not, not surprising to imagine that there would be, yeah, uh, what fourteen Arthur Miller productions. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm known. It's not the raw number that surprises me. It's the relative. I see. What you're right, saying, yes. like I mean, so like 
let's just play with our dead white guys for a moment, shall we? Right. I mean, that Arthur Miller is topping out on top, you know, um, uh, above Williams and mm-hmm. O'Neill and, and Wilde, I guess, is sort of it's like. That, that I find somewhat surprising. Yeah. Although I, w- I, w- I would say that I th- think it's interesting that the persistence of Shakespeare being at the very top, mm-hmm. having 108 productions, um, and then having someone like Arthur Miller having 14 or Tennessee Williams having nine, you know, tying August Wilson, it makes me wonder, is there really such a thing as an American canon of playwrights? Hmm. Right. I mean, like we often say, you know, our great American playwrights are these individuals. Right. You know, but they're not appearing with the frequency that you would expect. But haven't we spent like 30 right? years like saying those are not our great American playwrights? We don't like that great right. American playwright list. Right. But, and clearly that's what regional theaters are agreeing with. Yeah, maybe so. But so the, the, the authors, the playwrights I would identify as canonical on this list, just off the top of my head, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, August Wilson, I would say, I'm uh, canonical. Yes. Um, uh, I left him off because I was like talking about dead white yeah. guys. And so. Well, sure. Um, uh, Eugene O'Neill, um, Oscar Wilde. So, um, Lorraine Hansberry. Uh, Lorraine Hansberry, absolutely. Um, so it's a, you know, it's, it's some names you would expect to see performed a lot. Um, but you're talking about single digit numbers in many of those cases out of two, almost 2,000 plays. So um, also, there must be a lot of playwrights out there, right? I guess. I mean, I mean, keep in mind, too, I mean, I would say one of the major reasons why Shakespeare continues to be so produced is that he's he's royalty-free. That's true. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, so yeah. we also, you know... And it's very interesting, too. The other thing I notice is that... Um, you know, many of the women in the in the top ten of the most produced playwrights mm-hmm. are listed uh, with co co writing credits, right? Yeah. So you you get a real sense that there's a kind of you know collaborative culture also mm-hmm. emerging among uh, American playwrights. Right. Um, there's also some adaptations going on in there, right? So Lisa Cron is um, near the top of the list, yep. but she adapted Fun Home, right? So some of these are not original properties. Simon Stevens adapted The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Right? Yep. Um, so these are, you know, new plays, arguably, but they're also ad- adapted. We, we need to get our hands on data and start running some <laughs> we get, more we interesting analysis. Derek Miller in here. Yeah, fair um, enough. So, guys, uh, why don't we uh, move on to our drafts? drafts. The drafts. Um, pull up a stool, pour yourself a nice cask draft, um, these are the things we are thinking about and working on or just thinking about. Sarah, why don't you start us off? What's your draft this month? Sure. Uh, my draft this month is a Chicago-themed draft. Uh, so I have been reading John Muse's Microdramas. Ah, right. Uh, just came out. It did, uh, from University of Michigan Press. It's in my series. Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah, so of course. Well, so, so the double, right? So John uh, Muse is at uh, University of Chicago. Um, and the the subtitle for this uh, for this piece that I'm trying to find rapidly. So, uh, what is it? Microdramas, um, crucibles for theater and time. Um, so I've been reading the 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 electronic version of this, and um, and it's really it's a it's a super engaging, really thoughtful, uh, wonderful book that I highly recommend. One of his, uh, I'll just a couple of ideas to pull out from his introduction. Um, one of his arguments that he makes for the study of brevity and what it promises theater artists is this idea uh, that by studying 
theater at the extremes, and particularly this extremely short time, which he juxtaposes at certain points against Jonathan Kalb's marathon theater and the stresses that Kalb sees theater, and he defines marathon theater as theater longer than four hours, uh, is that it reduces, for, for Muse, it reduces theater to its essential functions and its essential elements. And so it's, there's a, a kind of really digging down into the, the essence. And so if you think about theater as manipulations of, of time and space, these kind of extremes of time become highly revelatory. And also the, 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 the way in which he talks about the normative expectations of theater and theatrical time and how those change uh, historically and what we think of as, as quick and fast and, and some of the current ideas in terms of society and culture has sped up and so now our, you know everyone's got a short attention span and, and I found his his reading through and working through of uh, Susan Laurie Parks's 365 days 365 plays mm-hmm. um, in the category of what he calls um, marathons of microdramas mm-hmm. right um, uh, and uh, and his analyses of, of Carol Churchill's love and information um, a play also a kind of as a sure. kind of mosaic of these short snippet very brief plays you know any book that can kind of take me from the futurists you yeah. know uh, you know bullet gunshot play to uh, love and information I think is just a fantastic That's kind terrific. of sequence so I, I highly recommend the book it's really engaging and uh, Muse is a wonderful writer or, or at least very well edited <laughs> probably both right probably both uh, Harvey what do you have to share with us well, I've been thinking uh, quite recently about uh, dramatic theory uh, and whether it has been uh, replaced, supplanted by performance theory, which is part of uh, this um, journal of dramatic theory and criticism issue right. uh, that is being edited right now. And I'm really, really late on this essay. Uh-huh. I'm, extraordinarily, I mean, I'm not done with it yet, and it should have been done a while ago. Uh, but, but really trying to get a sense of of how, when you're thinking about black performance theory or black performance studies, how it's already indebted to uh, the writings of, of early drama critics, and hoping to, trying to draw a bridge across the two to say that, you know, we've changed terminology, but essentially the core theoretical construct remains the same. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I'm doing. I look forward to to reading that, yeah. I if got I finish this thing. <laughs> you'll finish it. You, you'll finish it. Just well, you need to stop hanging around, going to theater, and like yeah. sitting in you know Recording conference rooms podcasts. with us. <laughs> um, my, my draft this month is uh, podcast-related, so if you listen to On Tap, you probably like podcasts, and you probably know about Mark Maron's WTF podcast, which is uh, you know needs no introduction from me. But recently, um, I think last week, um, he had an interview with Willem Dafoe, um, which I listened to, and it was really great. He you know, talks about his film career, which is ongoing, um, uh, but he talks about his early career growing up in Wisconsin, discovering experimental theater there. Um, Richard Schechner's name is mentioned, Worcester Group, Elizabeth Lecompte. Um, uh, and he talks about the importance of the university in his um, intellectual upbringing and how important it was for him to go see what was going on at the University of uh, Wisconsin-Milwaukee, I think, because he had siblings there. And so for our audience, if you, you know, I'm a Worcester Group nerd and you know, sort of avant-garde theater nerd, um, so of course I was going to listen, but I think there's a broader kind of um, takeaway about the way that young artists and intellectuals are, are formed 
between the academy and producing institutions. So check that out. Guys, this has been such a treat. I hope we get to record in person again very, very soon. Yeah, absolutely. You guys will hear from us again in November. And um, I guess that's all there is. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Harvey. Thank you, panel. Thank you. It's fun. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.